Hi there, I'm Evan Troxell. Welcome to my podcast about how technology is changing the architectural profession. Welcome to the Troxell Podcast. My name is Evan Troxell. In this episode, the conversation is with Andrew Human. Andrew's probably most well known for his Grasshopper plugins, including Human, Human UI, and MetaHopper, which we do discuss a little bit in this show. He's also really well known just for his contribution and his presence within the computational design side of AEC. In this episode, we talk a lot about tool building. And really, the thesis of this episode was about building tools that people love to use versus the tools that people hate to use. I think we all have different versions of those two categories, but it is probably pretty well known that Andrew's tools are some of the more beloved tools in the computational design field. And now he's working at Hypar. And if you had the chance to listen to one of the earlier episodes with Ian Keough, who's one of the founders, you have a better idea of the types of things that Andrew is helping to build in that small team. So we talk a little bit about tools. We talk a little bit about culture. We talk a little bit about design. We also talk about Andrew's generative artwork and some of the things that he's doing outside of his day job to stay sane. So if you don't know Andrew and you want to learn more about him after hearing this episode, I really encourage you to check out the links that are in the show notes for this episode, and I hope you enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Andrew Human. Andrew Human, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Great to see you again. Thanks. It's great to be here. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. So you are currently working in New York with Hypar. Yep. And I mean Hypar is a distributed workforce. Ian we had Ian on the show. Yeah. He was he was one of the early episodes. He's he's here in Southern California. And so you guys are all over the place. You're a small team though, right? And but you're very distributed. You've yep. got where, where's Anthony's like in Massachusetts, I think. Is that right? Yep. Yep. And Matt is as well. And yeah. Yeah. All right. So so you guys are you got it's funny because there's there's all of this stuff going on with like physical office buildings. I don't know if you saw this. REI is sent out this note that they're selling their new headquarters and they're going to distributed headquarters. Yeah. And you guys never had that problem. Yeah, well, we didn't. It's funny, actually. I worked on that project at least a little bit during my time at NBBJ. It's an NBBJ project, and I worked on some computational tools around the the district where that project is cited in Bellevue and a little bit on the project itself. And yeah, it is, it's just crazy. I feel like this moment is obviously causing everybody to rethink their relationship to the physical workplace and, you know, in a way, it's funny because it's not something that has affected us directly much at Hyper because we've just been a distributed workplace from the beginning. Right. We've never had a physical office. We've never gotten used to work patterns that require us to, you know, lean over to each other or whatever. We kind of make all of that work digitally. Um, so it hasn't been a huge change for me personally. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. And and you guys utilize Discord for a lot of your communication and, and back and forth. Do you know, I'm sure Ian probably and Anthony decided to go that direction, but I'm sure you weighed in on that. Like, how did that, how'd that come about? Why Discord instead of, you know, Teams or Slack or something else that most tech companies are using? Yeah, well, interestingly, we do use Slack internally. So our team, when we're just talking among Hypar employees, we use Slack. 
we opted for Discord probably for a kind of boring reason, which is just that like it was, you know, it was easier to do more with without paying. <laughs> so, you know, I think we have a free Discord server and it's easy to, you know, bring on as many members and things like that as we want. It holds on to history. It just felt like it was a little bit easier to make it open to a broader community. Um, and so it's been a little fun. We talked about maybe moving our internal com communications to Discord too. Right now we kind of juggle both, but I've really liked seeing that community blossom on Discord and have people, you know, kind of weighing in, not just about our product and the things that we're building, but about the state of the industry and its relationship to technology in general. Yeah, I think that's one of the most interesting threads or channels in that Discord is the future of the profession. One where, where people really yeah. are discussing some pretty deep stuff. And it's hard to do that, in an, especially in a non-threaded environment like it's just a channel and stuff yeah. gets dumped into there. That to me is the biggest downfall of Discord at this time is that it's not threaded. So it is, you kind of lose track of who's talking to who because it's just linear. Well, it's funny because Slack was not threaded when it first came out right. either. And I remember people were really angry when Slack added threads. And now I can't imagine life without them. It's so much easier to like, you know, keep literal threads sort of organized. And I think, and that probably is an outcome of people living on these tools a lot more, right? Where it's, it's like, oh, you're just on it all the time. And so threads really do help you kind of manage the information a little bit better, for sure. So yeah. that, that's interesting that, that you guys have two different tools for this. So you kind of have to keep things in separate buckets. But I, I do really think it's, it's amazing that you've pulled together a community that's way bigger than the product itself. Like as far as the concepts, the ideas that are shared and the tools that people are talking about and how it's, it's great for you guys is like a, it's a, a looking glass into the, into the thoughts of the industry and it's it's all right there right at your fingertips totally. that's super cool and and it's only that you you guys can do that because of who you are and i think that your history and, and what you've been able to kind of build these communities over time totally i mean we have all benefited from these kinds of communities you know i i basically i like to say i grew up on the grasshopper forum you know yeah. i basically learned to code by participating in the grasshopper forum a lot of my like friends and like important business relationships like in some way or another overlapped right there on the internet and you know i think the dynamo forum was sort of similar is still similarly dynamic mm -hmm. and we just you know we we really we understand that Hypar as a product will live or die on the sort of the quality and depth and breadth of our community. Um, it is, you know, we're trying to do something that impacts the industry as a whole. And it's impossible to do that unless we're really tied into what's going on in the industry. And we have people out in the world who, you know, are doing the work day to day who can give us real close feedback about what does and what doesn't work and about what they're thinking about and about what their challenges are. Um, it's really easy. The further you move from, you know, kind of day-to-day -day practice, you know, I started as, you know, doing design technology at MBBJ and I've kind of steadily stepped further and further from the sort of day-to-day -day practice of design. It's really important to maintain that connection so we don't lose touch with what would be relevant, what would be useful, what do real projects look like, what do real problems look like. So I'm now thinking with software development and releases. So you you've come from a long history of you know you you've had Human UI, you've had these these different plugins for Grasshopper, and you'd put them up on Food for Rhino, right? And you would write up some release notes, 
and now you don't do that anymore, right? right? Like now you, you put an announcement into Discord that says, hey, there's this new thing. I put yeah. together this GIF, I put together this video, and I'm going to put an announcement on Twitter. But because all of the development, it's all happening and, and running in real time, basically, like you're, you're iterating so fast and new releases come out all the time. Like it's just whatever the latest thing you're working on is. And how do you get the word out? How do you, how do people know to look for these new features? It's completely different story than where you've come from previously. Totally. And I think it's a completely different story from the way people have come to expect to interact with the software that they use for their work. Yeah. You know, uh, I'm not, we're not doing a yearly release where we have, you know, this laundry list of new features. Right. Like even when we're not making announcements, we're doing releases like every week that are fixing bugs that are releasing new things. Sometimes we get so wrapped up in actually doing the work of improving the platform that we haven't been as good about remembering to tell people about <laughs> yeah, all of totally. the improvements and the features and things that we've added. We're trying to be much better about that. Um, but it is really a totally different way to work where you're just constantly building a thing and putting it out there in the world rather than waiting for it to be, you know, some perfectly polished gem that has the exact right feature set. And there are advantages and disadvantages to working that way. Well, in a lot of ways, it's a lot like an architectural project, right? Where it's just the, it's a constant work in progress. Everybody on the team is very tied into the daily updates that are happening, you know, that are throughout the days, throughout the weeks. And it is, it, it's just, a, this train is on the tracks and it's going down and, and it's moving, right? Versus like you're talking about the, the yearly release cycle is very much not like those are you're talking about Revit and you're talking about Hypar, you know, Revit 2021. Like there's never going to be a Hypar 2020 and a Hypar 2021. It's just Hypar, right? right? <laughs> yeah, that's that's interesting yeah, because exactly. it, it it seems to me like this was really ushered in because of, you know, I'm looking at my phone right here where the auto app updates, they come in. And it's like, how important are release notes now anymore? Like, no, does anybody go into the app right. store to read the release notes? No, nobody does. Because it's just the latest version <laughs> yeah. of the app. And they could completely change everything about it. That doesn't happen very often, but they could. And, and it's just going to show up on your right. phone one day. Yeah. And it, it, it's, it's interesting because it also, it requires a degree of care with those changes. Because you don't want to, you don't want to break something that someone has been relying on. You don't want to counteract some intuition that someone has already built up about how your product works and thinks. So, you know, it means we we do have to think a little bit before every change we make instead of saying, okay, we're going to prototype this thing and then, you know, we're going to we're going to make it the way that users want to think about it. We just have to constantly have that in mind. Okay, so the the idea for this podcast was really about designing tools that people love to use because you I think are kind of at the center of that. Like there's, there are tons and tons and tons of grasshopper plugins out there and most of them fly under the radar and most of them are really bespoke and they're, they do a certain little thing, but you had a completely different approach. You basically exposed grasshopper to a much wider audience because you developed a tool that made it so that you, not everybody had to get into the spaghetti, right? right. So, so human UI and, you know, for for those of those people, for those people who out who are out there who don't know what it is, basically, you've developed. Why don't you explain what what the tools are that you've developed, and and then we can start to talk about why people like to use them. 
Yeah. So, I mean, I think human UI is probably the best known, which is essentially a way to use Grasshopper to construct proper user interfaces that basically make your Grasshopper script look and behave like an app. You can really customize the appearance and and hide away a lot of the visual programming spaghetti Mm -hmm. um, in order to make these definitions accessible to more people. The other two plugins that are fairly popular, Human was actually the first one I released, which is just about tightening the relationship between Grasshopper and Rhino, expanding the kinds of objects in Rhino you can look at, like hatches and blocks and things in the Rhino environment, like layers and materials and things that Grasshopper normally can't operate on. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the other one is MetaHopper, which is sort of a pro tool for folks who actually want to use Grasshopper to manipulate Grasshopper itself, to do kind of like programming where you'll, you'll build uh, grasshopper, grasshopper script that's designed to like operate on your grasshopper script rather than operate on something else, operate on a model or on the on the Rhino environment. I, I love the name, <laughs> MetaHopper. <laughs> it's awesome um, because yeah, it, it, it's it's interesting. So you've got these three different kind of sets of tools, right? Because every every install mm-hmm. of these is like a a ton of components for for Grasshopper, right? Um, but Okay, so now talk about why, so, so that, again, the concept of this was tools that people love to use versus hate to use, right? And so there's lots and lots of, I think there's just a lot floating around that, that idea, and I, I thought you would be great to talk about that because it seems to me like this is one of those, especially human UI, because it, it is an abstraction layer on top of Grasshopper that allows more people to, to get into the tools and use them effectively, like what's what's been your experience with developing a tool like that and and the the feedback that you've gotten? Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's a it's always one of the things that that Grasshopper has sort of opened my eyes to, and then this is sort of a mental image that I've formed over time is just this this sort of endlessly towering stack of layers of abstraction on top of each other. At the very bottom, you have like, you know, the zeros and ones and the machine language and all of this other stuff. And then, you know, you've got low level languages and then you've got high level languages. And then on top of that, you've got platforms and then you've got scripting languages like Grasshopper on top of the platforms. And then you've got, you know, coding inside the scripting platforms and so on and so forth. And I just think that like, you know, this is fundamentally the nature of these digital tools is that they allow you to operate at all of these different levels of abstraction. And Human UI was designed to, I think, expose the the logic of a Grasshopper script as an application, as an interface mm-hmm. that someone else could use. It's actually a way of hiding you know, some of the core functionality because the it grew out of an experience that I had working at NBBJ, which was that I was leading a team doing a lot of, you know, design computation work internally, and we would build all these amazing scripts. And somehow, every time, they would sort of fail to penetrate the practice. They would fail to become yeah. uh, useful to people. And I think a lot of that had to do with just pure fear. Yeah, I was like, going to say intimidation. Uh, trepidation. Yeah. Yeah, about about Grasshopper itself, feeling like this isn't my territory. This isn't for me. Um, I'll leave this to the geeks over in that corner. And yeah. you know, but but that fundamentally like misses one of the core 
things about Grasshopper that makes it so powerful, which is this idea of like being able to build something once and reuse it over and over again. It's no yeah. good if only you can reuse it. And so Human UI was one of the first things that, you know, I think really was in my mind making that more true, making the possibility of reuse more available. I actually think sort of Hypar continues on that trajectory even further. We can talk about that maybe a little bit more later. But I think with Human UI, there's a lot of comfort that comes from sort of like known interface paradigms. Mm -hmm. I think that like the interface is itself a language. And I think the thing about Grasshopper is it's an interface that's very much a foreign language to people. They'll look at it and can't make heads or tail of it. It doesn't look like anything they've ever used before. And so they're scared of it. And over time, in an organic way, a sort of vocabulary of interface paradigms has grown that we've all grown used to. And I mean, you know, the even just like desktop software today looks fairly different from the way it looked 10, 20 years ago. And people working then would probably be super intimidated by the, you know, the graphical user interfaces and the, you know, the touch interfaces that we use. So I think that, you know, the intent of human UI was to allow you to take the logic of something like Grasshopper, but wrap it in this language, in this other language, translate it to a language that other people can speak and and actually like create a, a way that someone could relate to it and not be not be scared off by it and actually do something useful with it by understanding what it was meant to do. An interface is always, you know, in the same way that like an architecture might speak to what's happening inside through its, you know, its articulation. I think an interface is a way of describing what a piece of software is capable of. Yeah, it's interesting to think about it in the in that way, because I, I have I have two kind of images floating in my mind. One is like this is software, right? This is almost all software that people interact with is through a UI, and it's not at the building block level of that. And so you are right. you are having this kind of veil of UI, which the cool thing about yours is your idea is that like it's flexible. You can do whatever you want with it. It's that layer sitting on top of all this other stuff, and you get to design what that looks like too. And so there's there's kind of another layer right. of design going on. You're designing a script, you're designing a building, and you're designing a UI to interact with the script that drives the building, right? So there's layers of design right. problems going on there. And and then I'm also thinking of like the way cars have gone, where if you bought a new volvo or a new mercedes or something and you pop the hood like you see a giant piece of plastic that's it like you have this nothing you like you don't have access to you can't even change the oil on your car anymore right because right. now they're just relying on the sensors and they don't want you in there tinkering with it and so they've kind of removed that ability and the the ui is now on the dashboard and they're just saying no just wait for the light to come on right <laughs> just just wait for us to yeah. tell you. And so I it's to me it's interesting because the whole appeal of using Grasshopper is to get under the hood and tinker with the things, but that's not right. for everybody. Clearly it's not. And so you've built a, a way to still harness the power of the tinkering and the ability to build custom tools for your company and hopefully they do get reused over time, but you've actually created a way for that to happen and for more people to touch it. Yeah. And I think, I mean, if you look at it, 
in that light, like Grasshopper did the same thing in its own way. It's a, it's a layer of visual abstraction over the top of a lower level construct, which is, you know, writing code, yeah. like connecting processes together, like scripting and stuff. But it, it makes that friendlier and, and made it accessible to a generation of designers. And I think that every time there's always a trade-off though, between the the sort of friendliness of the interface and the level of control that you have as a user of that interface. Um, you always, and, and so I, the thing that I like about Grasshopper is that like once you reach a certain point, you drill down and you go, you need to go one level deeper and you need to dig into the Grasshopper script. The same is true for human UI. Maybe you reach the limits of what somebody's sliders allow you to do. And now you have to dive into the Grasshopper script in order to, in order to take that control. So I think I'm really in favor of tools that permit that kind of level jumping yes. where you can rely on the high level stuff insofar as it does everything you need it to do, but it doesn't block you from going one level deeper when you need to do something more sophisticated or custom. It's unlike the phone app because on that, if the slider doesn't go as far as I need it to go, like, what am I going to do? But right. on this one, you've actually enabled people to be able to to first of all, just understand that they can get in there and, and tinker with it. I think you, you've created kind of a door to Grasshopper that didn't even exist before. Because before, like you were saying, some people are like, that is not for me. But but now maybe there is a, at least the ability for them to like peek through the door and say, no, I could change that one little part to make it do what I want. Right, exactly. And I don't know to what extent in practice people like people actually do that. Like, I don't know if people are are brave enough to, to peek behind the curtain of the UI and get into the grasshopper script. But I have to imagine it happens sometimes. Well, I know it does. I know it does in our firm. And I, I think that one of the things I guess it starts to bring me to building tools that people love to use is so if, if you were to put a survey out with, you know, 10 different tools on it, I'm guessing that yours and probably Nate's or, you know, there's going to be a few that are totally at the top of that list where they act, people actually smile when you talk about them. So was that a conscious decision on your part or did you just have some kind of like you just knew that it was going to be like that or was that just totally take you by surprise? I mean, I it, it was certainly not like a planned thing in that I was like, oh, I'm going to set out to build a tool that people will relate to in this particular way. I was mostly building it for myself. Like and I think that actually a lot of a lot of really beloved tools do start from that yeah, kernel of right. like, I just, I, I have a problem. Like I can't get people to use my scripts. So the way that actually a lot of it started, we were hard coding like custom plugins for every script we wanted to distribute and we would compose the interface that way. And it was like, this isn't sustainable. We can't actually like custom develop a UI for every single script we want to develop. So let's let's do it in the tool that we're already using. So, you know, I, I think that it's a, it's a really deep and, and meaningful question. Like, what is it that makes people love a tool? And I, I do think that it's like, uh, when it operates right at that threshold of something that I was too scared to tackle or, or was impractical to tackle before, and it's like opening all of these doors, I, I think of Grasshopper that way for me you know, that's a tool that I will love for the rest of my life. Yeah. I, I feel like very emotionally compelled by Grasshopper as a tool because it took something that I was like maybe a little shaky on and then wrapped it with just enough of an abstraction that I could 
I could start to do all these things with it. Well, you like, built a career on it. with the way that I was <laughs> thinking about the problems. Yeah, absolutely. I, yeah, I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you about this today if, if Grasshopper hadn't, you know, hadn't, if I hadn't been exposed to it in my schooling. So it changed my life, man. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, totally. You can find there's a, there's a, a pretty like sappy post I made on the Rhino forum talking about just like how much I love. McNeil and Rhino and Grasshopper. I remember when you posted that because it was like, you know, as forums can be, they can be a, a fairly toxic place sometime where it's just a load of complaints, yeah. right? And it's like, how come it doesn't do this? And how come you're not on my timeline? And 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 I, you had like really good timing on that. I, I really felt like when you put that out there and then just the outpouring that came out from that spark that you put out there was so fun. And like you said, like this is a meaningful tool. It. You built. You have built your career up till you know this point on that, and with these tools, and you've built communities, and you've built a love, an additional love. You've you've probably opened the door for so many other users of that tool. So to see kind of the the piling on that happened from that post, it was really yeah. just like a breath of fresh air, and and so that was that was really cool. Yeah, I mean, I I really look to McNeil as role models in this. Like, I want to make tools that people love as much as people love Rhino. Yeah. My only story of meeting Bob, it was at, I think it was at, I want to say SIGGRAPH, and two guys at a booth showing Rhino, and they had, like, the zebra pattern on the car fender, and they're showing, like, I was, I'm an architect, right? So I was there, and I was looking at, Form Z and electric image and like Revit may may or may not have been there at that time like not not even an Autodesk thing right but it was it was very early days and they were like they're like hey you know it, like all booth people do they're trying to get you to come over and take a look at it and hey what do you yeah. think about this and they're showing these NURB surfaces with the continuity and all this stuff and I was just like yeah I build like buildings I build walls they're straight up and down and <laughs> and I and, and I and it was it was cool to see because I ended up going into more of like the visual effects side of things and where where people do use yeah. lots of curved surfaces and stuff but I at that time it was like that's cool, uh, but it's not for me. And now just to see how far it's come, but how they've also kept the company like yeah. intentionally, uh, I, I don't want to say small, but but independent, right? Like it's it's yeah. it's been really a joy to watch that happen in an industry where things get gobbled up and they die every single day. Yeah, and I don't think it's a mistake that like there's a relationship between a sort of conscious set of business practices. Like we want to run this company in a way that is correct. And the product itself also being sort of like beloved. Like I think that there's, you know, I, I don't know that it's, maybe there are examples of horrible companies making products that we love, but I feel like there's, there's something natural about this relationship where, you know, if you if you build your business and your your employees in in their relationships and the way that they relate to a community in a conscious way, then the product benefits from that too, and will will have that same kind of love from its community. So, how does that kind of thinking that that you've witnessed there and and with the tools that you've built, how does that translate now to Hypar? Because you guys are you guys are starting on a journey. Like there's no end in sight. Like we just already talked about the development cycle yeah. <laughs> is just continuous and there's so much to do and you have to be so intentional about a lot of that stuff. But on the same 
on the flip side of the coin, I guess you're, you, you have to be able to say, no, like we have to go in this direction. We've got to build something really big. We've got to be able to scale it. How does that fit into like your guys day to day? And, and how does that translate into a new tool and a new platform? Yeah. I mean, that's like a huge question. I mean, we, I think we're, we're really all united by this, vision of what's possible. And we all have slightly different versions of that vision, but there's enough in common there that we really feel like Hypar can can become the thing that we all see, which is, you know, a, a totally modern way to think about doing design work. I think that for me, one of the kernels of that is that like actually design work is a lot like software development and it should, you know, you shouldn't have to start from scratch. You should be able to pull in existing libraries. It should be easy to reuse components and build on existing levels of abstraction. Like it's all the same thing. And design really does work that way already. It's just the tools don't reflect it. So there are lots of other aspects of that. But I think like we're all really excited by the vision of what's possible. And I think we've found that when we talk about that with other people, they start to see it too. One of the most rewarding things for us has been when we have conversations with folks about what we're trying to build. And then later on, we see them on Twitter or in meetings or whatever, talking about it and sort of selling the vision yeah. independent of us and right. actually, you know, articulating it in a way that, in a way that makes sense to them. So, you know, I think Obviously, our relationship with the community is a huge part of that. We all have, you know, connections with the Grasshopper community and the Dynamo community and the Revit developer community and all of this stuff. And we really, it's really important to us to maintain those connections, even just, you know, sort of socially or or in an informal way, just so that we stay stay attuned to what's actually happening in the industry and what people really need. As far as like an internal organization, I think that you know, I, I give Ian and Anthony a ton of credit for really also setting out to build a company that's not just going to take all of the VC money that could possibly be thrown our way and grow, grow, grow. I, I obviously know what a grow, grow, grow company is like, having been at WeWork for a few years, um, and it has a lot of challenges. Um, the other thing that I think has really contributed is that Matt, who's our CTO, who I, I report to has really made a pretty phenomenal conscious effort to build a kind of healthy and respectful internal culture. And, you know, we're a tiny team. So it's easy to not think about that and just rely on the fact that our personalities kind of gel. But we've been really, really mindful of trying to build up a team. uh, And this is, this is largely, largely Matt, I think, that really has processes in place to ensure that you know, feedback comes in the right form and it's not, it's not aggressive and it's not, you know, it it happens, it happens in the right way. It can be informal, but it can still be, you know, constructive and that everybody feels like they can contribute to the product. I think, I mean, I think this is probably just a universal experience in any professional context, but imposter syndrome is like a real thing. I've faced it at every job I've ever, I've ever worked at. And I think, one of the things that Matt had me do when I first joined Hypar was the first thing I had to do was like release a feature to production. It was like, okay, here's what you're going to do. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to design a feature and you're going to build the whole thing. And it's going to, it's going to pass through all these systems. And I was like, uh. I don't know if I can do that. Like that's so much stuff is like beyond my reach. And he was like, no, well, we'll, you will, you will do that. And that's, that's how this is going to work. 
And just having that experience right off the bat and being able to like fail sometimes, but then, you know, figure out how to correct it and get reviewed on the work that I was doing in a way that was constructive. And then just feel like I actually had delivered something. Like I released a feature, here it is. Nothing I think in my professional career has ever been more effective at kind of dispelling that sense of imposter syndrome. It's like, look, we're all here, we're all working, we're all building stuff. And it's really unlike anything I've ever experienced. I, I, I feel really grateful to work in an environment that, that operates that way. It's, uh, it makes me think of how when, when somebody gets hired at a company and they can, they're, they're continually trying to impress and impress and impress. And, and that imposter syndrome is, is a part of this. And at some point in my career, somebody said, you've already got the job, right? Like, like you've been hired. Yeah. <laughs> Stop. This is no longer an interview. That thing is over. It's time to move on. And, and now we are all in this for better. You know, like, like this is going to be our relationship, the beginning of it, and we're going to build it. And I think like, that's a great testament to that kind of mindset about building a culture by we're in this together. Um, and you're not just yeah. feeling like you're on the spot and you have to perform all the time. It's like, no, we're going to get work done and work is messy. Right. And so we're, and as architects, yeah. <laughs> I think we're okay with that more than a lot of other companies are, or our professional types, but we have to continually kind of go back and remind ourselves that we're okay with that because there's so many other influences that yeah. are, that's not okay. It has to be perfect every time and you have to execute, execute, execute. Yes. Right? Yeah. And I mean, one one more piece of that that I think is is embedded in our culture is this idea of, you know, kind of like blame-free postmortems. Like whenever something goes wrong, whenever, and, and believe me, I have broken stuff so many times since I joined the company. <laughs> I've like released a feature to production that like, you know, would crash stuff and all kinds of stuff has gone wrong. But the culture that just says like, the thing that matters is like, solving the problem and then figuring out how to not commit the same mistakes next time. The, the nowhere in that process, is it about blame or about saying, you know, you, you screwed up, like you need to be yeah. punished. Yeah. Like it just isn't about that at all. And it's really refreshing. Yeah. I mean, I, you can tell just by talking to you guys. I mean, I think it was at AU last year. So almost a year ago when you guys had a booth and, um, I don't think you were there at that point, right? But it was Anthony and Matt and Ian were all there. And you can, like, it's just like one person hands off a conversation to another and it just picks right back up. And, and it's very, like, like you guys are very complimentary to each other. And so I think where when things really start to overlap a lot more is is when those types of conversations that you're having or that you're talking about that don't happen, happen. Because it it's like, you're invading on my turf. And so now we have to compete, right? And yeah. and that to me is, uh, I mean, that's a, a, a great reason to stay intentionally, you know, with a smaller team where you've got expertise in different areas that complement each other and you can work through and come at problems with a very different experience sets to broaden kind of how everybody thinks about that stuff. I think that's a, that's also an important factor that that also is lended from architecture in general, I think, Again, going back to projects and the the work that we do, it definitely benefits from wider experience sets and from from different sets of expertise and lots of input. Yeah, there's this like I'm going to bastardize the wording, but there's this sort of commonplace in software development that like 
software, the architecture of a piece of software will inevitably come to reflect the shape of the organization that mm. creates it. Mm. Um, and I think that like, that's also true in a way of design projects. Like, you know, you start to the, the sort of the way that the pieces all fit together is very much a reflection of the way that the people who create the thing relate to each other and how, you know, if they're highly regimented and structured in their individual responsibilities, then it might not sort of flow as well. And I think that's, it's certainly true with the, with the software stuff. And I think, you know, our engineering team really makes an effort too, that it's like, you know, we don't have a front end person and a back end person and a, you know, and an ML person. We just kind of like all dive into all of the pieces. And I think it makes for a more cohesive and a more nimble process. Interesting. Yeah. I haven't heard of that before, but it seems to make sense, right? It's like, because the thing that you're making is an expression of the makeup of the team. And so, you're going to get some people who are more dominant than others in that process. And that expression is going to be more skewed towards, towards them. And that doesn't totally. always come out as aesthetic. It could be function. It could be a lot of different things, but, but it very much is an expression of the the creators. Right. So yeah, I, I think yeah. you see that a lot in architects. I mean, right. Because you're, you're thinking about what their buildings look like. I mean, that's how we all kind of, come upon buildings and it's like well if they're all kind of very similar like that is definitely like an expression of that individual or that team or, or whatever that firm yeah absolutely so so with the experience that you've brought with human tools to the high par team i mean have you guys had discussions about building tools that people love to use and kind of like getting that I don't want to call it a cult following, but I, I, it's starting to verge there with, with the tools that you've built over the years. So, so like, what are the kinds of things that you guys take into consideration when you're building tools and thinking about how people actually use them and, and how, how they want to use them versus not want to use them? It's something that we talk about, you know, either directly or indirectly quite a lot. It's, you know, it, it is really important to us to build tools that people really enjoy. And, and I think it's especially important when we're talking about creative tools, because, you know, I, I don't know, maybe, maybe some people feel this way about Excel. I, some people probably do. But I feel like when it comes to a tool that you have to, there's a certain flow state that you enter into when you're doing creative work, when you're designing something that wants to have not no friction, but also not much friction. It's sort of this sweet spot where you get just enough resistance from the tool that'll guide you towards good things, you know, whether that's tools like Figma for UI design that are going to, you know, tend you towards the certain sorts of operations or pixel widths or whatever that are going to work well for an application or a website or the ways that, you know, Photoshop or Illustrator sort of manifest the characteristics of the medium, whether it's, you know, bitmaps or vector graphics or whatever else. And I think that like, we, we want to make a, a tool that is sort of like, well suited to the kinds of tasks that people want to do in them. And in a way that enables them basically through automation by automatically solving certain problems and being magical where it can be, but also not providing a barrier to doing things a different way or to overriding those things or to pop down a level of abstraction to deal with something in more detail. So one of the things we're working on right now is, and this is something that I've been talking about even since before I joined Hypar, is the importance of the coexistence of 
uh, manual or direct intervention, direct manipulation, and automated solutions. So one of the things that's tricky about a tool like Grasshopper is that you sort of build this crazy script and it has all these controls and it makes this like super intelligent parametric entity. But then the minute you want to go move this one piece over here, you can't. You have to like bake it and remove all of the parametric associativity and intelligence. And then you're just dealing with like a bunch of dumb geometry again. And so one of the things we're trying to do is figure out how to let those things coexist in a healthy and productive way, because a designer just wants to design. They don't want to necessarily think that, you know, first they're going to think about it in terms of the broad high level strokes of, you know, maybe a general massing, maybe a few parameters, what's the overall height, how high are the levels, those kinds of things. But then they're going to want to make individual tweaks and they're going to want to make decisions that counteract the things that were decided for them automatically as a sort of default. So to me, I think a key for creative tooling is this ability to let the kind of magic coexist with the the very direct and the very manual. And, you know, I, I don't think we've cracked that quite yet, but it's definitely something we're working actively on. That is a delicate balance because one of the things that I've, one of the terms I've used to, to explain why you would want to have these parametric entities, as you called it, right? Like is, is that it allows the designer to play and talking about creative software yeah. A lot of times these these tools that, that you guys are building are talked about as if, well, we're going to remove all of these barriers of reuse. We're going to create more efficiency. It's going to be more productive because you're not having to start from a blank page. But at the same time, you also want to create tools that allow people to play with design and get informed feedback. Yeah, right. And I think the thing that's, the thing that's tricky is that play happens at many different scales. Yes. And in, in design, it happens at many scales simultaneously. And so, you know, when you're, when you can play, you can play with Legos, you can play with clay, you can play with like a 3D print that you made, but like every single one of those things is going to have a certain degree of sort of constraint to it, of limitation, which can be productive, um, you know, you, if you're building it up from Legos, it's probably a lot more expensive to get to the high tower than it is if you were just going to sketch it. If you sketch it, you can do that quickly. You can iterate on the overall form five or six times. To do that with Legos, you'd have to sort of plan in advance. Right. Um, with clay, you can like shift it around a little bit. And so I think it's all about striking the right, the right balance and, and the right kinds of interaction and control and play at the right moments. And I tend to think that like architectural design is especially challenging for this because it's it's big concrete problems nested inside of fuzzy problems nested inside of concrete things nested inside of like fuzzy and and you know loose associations and it just like it's very hard to imagine being able to like write a script that generates a whole thing but you also don't want to rely on just having to model every single entity from scratch and we don't do that even today you know things like revit are already introducing magic to turn right, right. your model into 2D drawings and to do the right things with, you know, components and things like that. It's interesting for me to think about it at the at the macro scale, because at the micro scale, and you have a lot of experience with this working at NBBJ and the various other companies you've worked with, where you've, you've been put onto a particular set of problems that is not maybe the scale of the whole building. So maybe it's the horizontal landscape in the district, or maybe it's a wall in the lobby, or maybe it's, you know, it could, 
typically right. these tools are employed upon discrete areas and not the entire thing. But Hypar is a different animal, right? You're, you guys are now start, starting to build a tool that is taking on all of the levels of scale that you just talked about, potentially, and keeping it parametric, right? Yeah. I mean, that's the hope. And I think, yeah, I think the, you know, the only way we get to a future where many different scales and many different components of the built environment can all be sort of operated on through an automatic way is to enable just that part first. Like we'll only get there by building up from successive parts. So right now on Hypar, there are tools that will do a site level master plan. And right. there are tools. There, there are tools that will turn your walls into like individual detailed wall panels with every single member. And that doesn't necessarily mean. Well, I mean, you you can, but it, but really, you know, in terms of the the full realization of a project, you can't necessarily connect the dots between those two right. scales. But I think our hope is that if we can facilitate sort of manual work as it currently happens, happening in between those scales. If you can just easily go back from you know a manual process to an automated one back to a manual one um, and not lose a lot of work or a lot of power or a lot of control, then ultimately we'll be able to build up enough of a library of functionality, logic, intelligence, algorithms, components, things like that, that, that people actually genuinely can rely on for reuse and for automation. Um, but that'll only happen if that stuff can integrate into the workflows that people have today. So that, you know, uh, we're investing in Revit integration so that you can just use Hypar for a small part of your process, but ultimately, hopefully, it will encompass more and more of the kinds of processes and maybe even whole phases of design work as we as we build out that functionality. Yeah, it's such a complicated, like you said, nested problem where where you've got, because I'm thinking like when 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 you say, okay, design team, we're going to design this building over the next year and a half. And all of these components that all these different blocks, these different functions that make up the whole thing um, are interdependent, uh, constraint based. Um, so they're, you know, because that's what design is. It's a series of decisions that you've made to get to the final result. And, and kind of what we're saying at some level is, well, you can go back to this block way early on and you can still change something and that will ripple through. And it could, I mean, the result could be nuclear, right? Potentially, but it could also be like amazing. It could be magic. I think that's really scary yeah. for a lot of people, right? Because what they want to be able to <laughs> yeah. do is say, okay, these series of functions are on lockdown. No one's ever going to touch these again. The decision has been made okay, lock those down so that we never have to think about those. And that's why design is broken up into these phases. So it's like, okay, we got sign off. Okay, I'm glad we're never going back there again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, as anyone who's worked in practice will knows, like that thing you lock down gets unlocked. Yes, it does. Like, it, you know, those those decisions that you made and you committed to are get, there's a, somebody throws a wrench into the work. So you discover, you know, something new about the site that you didn't know or some new constraint or, yep. you know, the cost of steel goes way up or whatever. And those changes have to be revisited. And I think that like the reality is that it will, it will, as you, as you put it, I like the term nuclear like, <laughs> upstream changes today are always nuclear. True. They're just always nuclear. Yeah. If you have to revisit an earlier decision, it will break everything else. And 
we it's a while before we will reach the promised land, which people have been talking about <laughs> since you know early days of Dynamo and Grasshopper right. of like non-nuclear upstream change. Right. It's a great idea. It remains challenging because there's still so much manual modeling and tweaking that has to happen. So yeah. until there's a world where the manual modeling and tweaking can coexist healthily with the automatic stuff, we will never realize that vision. And I suspect there will always be a degree of nuclear to upstream change. But I firmly believe that we can lessen the the scale of those uh, those detonations, let's say. It's uh, funny because it's true, right? Like these, it, it does change. Like you didn't talk to OSHA. And so therefore, insert nuclear level event right there yeah. right <laughs> right yeah and and especially doing la- these larger projects i mean we're i think we're, we're kind of that's what we're kind of talking about here because those are those are a different level of of nuclear but it really is like you didn't talk to that agency you didn't talk to that official you didn't talk to this group this multi-headed you know this there, there's so many of those floating around out there those landmines that do come up when you least expect it and it does have these insane repercussions and so so do you guys have conversations at Hypar around this kind of mixed mode of working, the manual versus the automated, the back and forth? Because you guys right now are very automated, right? You're very much on the automated side yes. of things. You draw one simple sketch and it does a bunch of things based off of that. Like, But you can't go in and tweak one yep. of those edges of a polyline and, and like you can't switch it to something else. Right. Well, I mean, I think... So we we have these conversations all the time, and I actually think the functionality that we'll be working on over the next couple months will start to round out this story with some of the direct manipulation and, and editing and stuff. Um, it's a it is a wickedly challenging problem. I can imagine. Um, I think one way in which Hypar is an improvement in terms of the sort of the nuclear problem on the sort of automated side of things over existing tools like Grasshopper Dynamo is that like. The way functions are described in Hypar, they lay out basically a contract for how you work with them. They say, these are the things that I need. This is the information I need from the rest of the model to run. And this is the stuff that I produce. And it creates these sort of like clear boundaries between steps in a process. So I actually can go into a Hypar model and strip out the massing strategy and inject a new massing strategy that obeys the same contract. And it will have all the downstream propagation that you could ever want. Um, when you try and do that in Grasshopper and Dynamo, like, you know, unless you're just referencing one new polysurface, which is never the case, it's always like a whole new strategy, taking, ripping out this part of the definition and then stripping in another part of the definition or the script, you know, uh, Grasshopper good, good surgery, luck. I used yeah. to call it, yeah. is like, uh, yeah, good luck. It's It's just not doable because we don't, we haven't learned the discipline of, of, you know, in software, it's software architecture. Like how do you, how do you build your scripts in such a way that there are sort of like well-defined boundaries and interfaces between pieces of responsibility. And Hypar is designed with that very idea in mind. It's like, I can define the boundary around a system and I can describe everything that that system needs and everything it produces. And then somebody else can make a new version of that same system and it will just work in whatever context mine did. So that's at least one step in the direction of kind of improving this, this nuclear problem. Um, And I think that a lot of what's to come as far as 
direct modeling in the hype bar, like actually being able to physically drag an edge, drag a vertex, like override a property of an object in the view. All of these things we're going to develop with the this core intention of making it as 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 friendly to to change as possible, making it making it as non-nuclear as we can get. Yeah, that's ex- incredibly exciting. I mean, and I could see the appeal from your point of view of coming from where you've come from to this kind of new paradigm of modeling, but also just like producing architecture, right? I mean, there, there's a whole other side of things, which is the drawing side of things, right? <laughs> which is what a- architects actually have to deliver for now, hopefully. I mean, again, talking about a long road, but this is, I think this is a really exciting problem to work on. And, and like you said, wicked, I mean, there's, there's tame problems and there's wicked problems. And this is definitely on the wicked yeah. problem side of things. And to me, like that, that's got to be really exciting and enticing for, for someone like you. Yeah, it, it absolutely is. I mean, I, you know, I think a lot of my interest, I mean, I've been interested in, in design tools since, you know, since day one, but the kinds of problems that we are looking at right now with Hypar are so tremendously exciting and motivating to me. And it really, you know, I think it feels like with the team we have and the team that we're building that we could actually get there. We could actually, I like, it feels like, like real solutions to some of these wicked problems are actually like within reach. I'm sure, you know, as wicked problems are like, we'll be faced with all kinds of things we didn't think of and all right. kinds of scenarios and situations that we didn't account for. But, but I really feel like we were, we're on the right track and there's uh, a lot of really exciting stuff coming right around the corner that I think will, will demonstrate our approach to this stuff. All right. So everybody's got to watch the, the Twitter and the discord so they can find out what those things are. Cause <laughs> that's where you guys yeah. announce it. <laughs> we'll put a link to those in the show notes because I think uh, it is fun watching awesome. you guys develop the stuff and, and just to watch kind of this pace that you guys are at is, is amazing. It's really fun to watch. So I think we we should start to wrap up, but first I like to tie these episodes together and ask what's something that if you could share that you use or you do to help yourself perform better? I mean, you are a machine, Andrew, right? Like you, I I heard (laughs) Ian talking about you one day and he's like, I don't know how he does it, but he's on Twitter and he's doing all this coding and he's releasing like, like how does he, I don't know how he does it, but I'm glad he does. Right. So, so, so share something that you can, that you can with our audience here. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I I don't know that I have a great answer to this. I feel like my, my relationship to like work and productivity has actually changed a lot just in COVID. Yeah. Like I think actually at the beginning of quarantine, I was using work as a coping mechanism. Mm -hmm. Um, It was like, it was like a way to distract myself from everything else that was going on. All these huge, intractable, terrifying problems by focusing on small, tractable problems that I could just throw myself into. And so at the very beginning of COVID, I was getting up at like 5.45 and just sitting down at my desk and starting working and working until nine. Yeah. Um, and I've, I've backed away from that a little bit because I, I don't, you know, even though I was having fun. You can't uh, do that forever. I don't, I don't yeah. think that's like, you can't do it forever and nor should you. Right. Um, And so, you know, I think that like the, the thing that, that keeps going and that motivates me in terms of productivity, I think is like 
it's trite, but I, I just really love what I'm doing. Like I, I have never had more fun in my life than, you know, than, than working on this product and feeling really passionately engaged in the kinds of problems we're trying to solve. I mean, the, the team really helps with that too. I just, I love everybody else on the team. They're super amazing. They bring incredible perspective, wisdom, knowledge to the table and it's just a joy to, to interact and build with them. As far as like things that keep me sane outside of work time, I do think that, and unfortunately, the, the downside of this is that it still has me seated at my desk, at my computer, but that's um, doing like generative drawing and actually using some of the same tools, honestly, things like Grasshopper and, and you know, one of these days I'll be making art with Hypar, although we're not quite there. Um, and making drawings, making like generative artwork. Mm -hmm. um, I find that it's like, it's really relaxing to me to detach from the considerations of like practical yeah. problem solving yeah. and just sort of treat creation as itself, this sort of like, you know, self-directed process. And I, you know, I sit down at Grasshopper with no idea in my head of what I'm going to build but it just sort of emerges in partnership with the tool. I think it goes back to this question earlier about, you know, creative tools. I think that like there's something magical about Grasshopper itself that it can facilitate that kind of, you know, sort of organic exploration and trying stuff and play, like you put it. So I think that's that's one thing for me has just been to spend some time creating without the pressure of oh, is it going to be buggy? Like it, I give myself the freedom to build things that are really janky or really hacky or really poorly documented and are just fun and I, are just a flow. It's just like, yeah, I'm just building stuff and I'm just yeah. like thinking and making together. I, 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 that I think has been really important to me. Although I, I will confess I've been doing a little less of it over the last couple of months. Well, you're, you're very, I don't, this is probably before your time, but you're very Bob Ross in this, in this scenario, right? Because <laughs> you, you should totally start a YouTube channel where you are, you are doing happy little algorithms and, <laughs> and I could definitely see you like, that's what it is. It's an exploration and there's no, there's no burden on the outcome. Right. And so it really does allow you that freedom to express yourself and who cares what it looks like under the hood, because you're never going to use it again. And you're learning through the process. You're getting better at what you do. And like, like I'm looking at this artwork behind you. It's gorgeous. And I know you've got it on your website and you, and people can get it. So we definitely want to plug that here in a minute. But, um, you know, I think you guys are doing some amazing work and, and I'm really rooting for you because, and I think that like even this little things that you use to keep yourself sane play a huge part in this other part of your life that's extremely important for our profession. You guys really are taking on a, a huge, uh, you, know, I don't, you know, like it's just this crazy slog to the North Pole that you're trying to do. And, and, and it's, a, it's, it's, I'm really rooting for you guys. It's, it's awesome. Well, thanks. Okay, so next question here. So who are you listening to or who are you reading? Like who's influencing Andrew right now? So... You know, I was actually like pretty, pretty tied into like, I mean, obviously I'm, I'm like a Twitter addict and I spend a ton of time on Twitter and there was a moment um, and I, you know, I, I, I was getting into a lot of like political stuff on Twitter too. And I just like, I've given myself the permission to like detach from the world a little bit. And the thing that I've been reading is actually one of my favorite books of all time. Um, 
Good Lesher Bach by Douglas Hofstadter. It's like a, it's a classic and I've read it a few times, but I'm, I'm going back to it and just savoring the just like immense richness of it. If you're not familiar with the book, it's sort of this weird meditation on all kinds of things, but primarily they sort of overlap conceptually in, in patterns between things like, you know, the music of Bach, the art of Escher, the mathematics of Goodall. And it's a meditation, it, it touches on so many things. It touches on artificial intelligence and the nature of the mind and recursion and all of these things. It's, it sounds like a thousand disparate topics and in a way it is, but it's also this masterful joining together into a set of relationships of all of these ideas. Um, and so it's been, it's been actually like really refreshing for me to kind of retreat into sort of like pure intellectual pleasure of, you know, just like thinking about big ideas and not worrying so much about the world at large and the state of politics and the state of the environment and the state of the economy and all of those other things that weigh on us. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great recommendation. And I think it's, you, you talked earlier about getting into a flow state while, while working, but it's also important to have that balance of that flow state without any outcome like that you're looking for, right? It's, it's just feeding your soul on a level that is necessary for that balance. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. Last question here is where can people follow you online? Where can they learn more about you? Uh, anything that you want to talk about or plug here is is wide open. I'm all over the internet. I'm like, a, I'm digitally promiscuous, let's say. Uh, so I'm everywhere. Um, you can find me. I, I'm pretty active on Twitter. I'm not as active on Instagram as I used to be. Um, although I, I still, I still post every now and then. And that's where you can find all of the like generative art stuff. Um, I also, I have a website, andrewhuman.com. You can go to shop.andrewhuman.com to purchase some of my generative artwork, which I make using grasshopper and a pen plotter. It's a little like robot, which you probably can't see on the camera over my shoulder where, you know, I fit it with a pen and it, it draws the stuff that I dream up. So yeah, there's the, there's that. And yeah, otherwise just I'm Andrew Human on Twitter and being human spelled like my last name, H-E-U-M-A-N-N on Instagram. I love how you actually get the artwork out of the computer into a physical form. That to me is the key to, I mean, I'm, it's it's right behind you and it's it's got this huge impact and it just doesn't have that on a screen where it's just so, you know, magazine-like where you just flip through it and then you never see it again. This is something that is worth putting out into the world. So it's, it's great. I think there's, I mean, it gets back to something we were talking about earlier, but the sort of necessity of constraints in a creative environment. I think that like something becoming physical introduces a level of constraint that yeah. just isn't, it's a different kind of constraint than right. the one that you face on the screen. And I really appreciate like every time the line wobbles a little bit because of, you know, the pen or the pen bleeds a tiny bit or the ink runs together. Those to me are the moments of the most magic. Yeah, I totally agree. That's a, a beautiful way to put it because you you don't see it coming. And it is one of those happy little accidents that just, <laughs> it happens through the process and you, and you learn from it and you might learn that, oh, you want that to happen even more, right? Like it's, it's not a right. necessarily a bad thing and it's just a, an outcome of the process. So it's cool stuff. Well, thank you so much for taking the time today. I, it was a fun conversation. For yeah, sure. it's a pleasure. Yeah. Yeah. It was really nice chatting with you. Thank you so much for having me on.
Thanks for hanging out with us today. This show is part of the Gable Media Podcast Network. You can see all the shows at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L-M-E-D-I-A.com. You can help support what I'm doing here by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts to help get the word out, and of course, share it with your friends. I'd love to hear from you, so leave a comment on the website at trxl.co slash podcast where you can find every episode. You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram and YouTube. Just search for E. Troxel. Talk to you soon.